This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark. I'm Uma Pagan Ampike Pagan. Joining me today is author, investigative journalist, and cultural critic Anne Elizabeth Moore. She is responsible for a wonderful piece of journalism that draws the connections between the international sex and garment trades and human trafficking. It is a beautifully illustrated comic series called Threadbare Clothes, Sex, and Trafficking. Hello, my name is Anne Elizabeth Moore, and I am an investigative comics journalist as well as a cultural critic. So Anne, we all know human trafficking is bad, it equals evil, and we should all be against it. And the garment industry, in a big way, is anti-human trafficking. That's very clear. They've lent their name and support to many initiatives that are against human trafficking. So therefore, we should all get behind the garment industry. Wow. <laughs> yes. So, so many <laughs> things going on there. Okay. So, um, the, the way that we're defining human trafficking, we have to look at, um, also the ways that the garment industry is supporting human trafficking. I'd like to look more closely at, um, but I think more particularly what concerns me is this idea that Companies can be the only ways that change might happen for the better in the world right now. And what I have come to believe by looking closely at the world of human trafficking and how it is largely, the dialogue around it is largely created by garment, the garment industry um, I have come to believe that we need to go outside of the corporate world to actually address human trafficking in a direct way. But it's completely true that, um, that yeah, I'm often accused of being uh, pro-human trafficking, <laughs> which is not the case at all. I'm very much against the idea of human trafficking. I'm very much against the human traffickers that have existed in the world. But what we also know is that the garment industry, by underpaying women consistently in every nation in the world, in every aspect of the industry that they operate in, from retail to models to warehousing to factories, underpays women, they refuse to support women uh, with childcare and healthcare. In many cases, they're creating very, very, very damaging work environments. And often they refuse to allow them the opportunity to participate in other industries or even other areas of their lives. And so when we start to look really big picture at what trafficking means and who is doing it in the country, we got to be slightly more critical of how the garment industry is supposedly supporting the end of human trafficking. Paint us a picture of fast fashion, where it started, what it means, and how we're all kind of complicit. <laughs> it's a big, so it's a big picture. So take all the paper that exists in the world right now and put it together on the floor. And what we... And then start in a teeny little corner and 
right 1974 down there. Because what happened in 1974 was, you know, part, part of out of a fairly thoughtful decision to bring economically underdeveloped nations on board, sort of the the increasingly growing enthusiasm for uh, globalization, um, something called the Multi-Fiber Agreement was created, which basically allowed poor countries' entry into a globalized network of fashion. And that was really the first time that you know, poor countries, Cambodia and um, Vietnam at the time and places like Bangladesh were given access into and, and offered incentives for participating in globalization. And that really uh, was laid the groundwork for an international now way of making clothes that relies on women in developing nations sort of giving over their labor and their, you know, emotional energies as well and a lot of their time for not very much money to make the clothes that really are created and produced everywhere in the world and or rather distributed everywhere in the world. And of course it's pitched at we're bringing you into the club. It's pitched in that way, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And it is kind of a club. I mean, it's it's a club in the same sense that, you know, the United Nations is a club or any trade agreement is a club. The benefits for which, you know, used to be like increased wealth and notoriety on the world stage, but are increasingly becoming, if you're not in the club, you're just never going to survive. And so as globalization, you know, the, the trick about globalization is that as it increases in scope and power and in number of participating countries, much less individuals in those countries, the fewer alternative options exist. And so now you you really can't make clothes outside of participating in some way in the fast fashion industry. It's started to affect everything from how clothing is produced. It's definitely affected the distribution system. It's affected, um, you know, every everything from marketing to the the amount of um, the the ways that you have to shop, and so you you can participate at this point in the fast fashion industry if you want to work in garments, or you can fail. Let me step back for a second. For those who don't know, in your words, if you could define what fast fashion is, fast fashion is an idea sort of based around the idea of fast food that there should be cheap and readily accessible, cute looking clothes um, that that don't require a lot of turnaround from design to production to availability. Um, They are often, therefore, very cheaply made, which is uh, where many of the problems of fast fashion come from. Right, because fast fashion in itself, on the face of it, sounds like a great idea. Yeah, it's all about, you know, and and all of the sort of talk about globalization is, is very similar because it's all about giving people better quality and we're defining quality in a very particular way, better quality goods um, in larger numbers. So we're, we're bringing in some ways the ideas of fast fashion. We're about bringing the notion of high class garments to low class people. 
Uh, but in order to do that, we make a lot of shifts in the kinds of materials and fabrics and production um, processes under which those clothes can be produced. And so we're really changing, you know, a, a very problematic notion to begin with in order to make goods widely available um, to a lot of people that are often created by, you know, really interesting designers or um, knockoffs of, of very interesting designers' work. Um, and so they are popular, for sure. So it it is safe to say that the idea of fast fashion came about in 1974 after the multi-fiber agreement. There was nothing like it before, was there? Well, the multi-fiber agreement was sort of the first big notion that goods could be made and produced in developing nations and then rich nations would have to order a certain amount of them. And so it incentivized fast fashion. Um, But then fast fashion itself really, really took off um, in the decades since. And I, I would I think the term doesn't even come into use until somewhere after 2000 when um, Inditex through Zara and several of its other um, clothing store lines sort of uh, pushed it further um, and made it very, very clear that something new was happening in fashion by having stores, you know, multiple stores in, in certain cities and, um, really, really, really pushing production so that there was sometimes as little as six weeks between design and availability. I think on the face of it, I think most people, I guess anyone who's somewhat news savvy, has an idea that sweatshops exist uh, in the developing world where these garments often get made. We've seen some special report on TV. We may have read a headline at least and underpaid labor or child labor is often on the forefront of our minds when we think about something like this. But where I think the disconnect happens and where I think people and what I think people don't realize is the tie in to sex, sex trafficking and human trafficking. I mean, fast fashion is it's a mess. It's, you know, like and you you can feel it when you put the dress on and I'm wearing one right now and it has a big stain in it that I didn't put there myself. Um, and it just is poorly made clothes. You can sense that there's something wrong with the idea of fast fashion when you're wearing the clothes and people are wearing the clothes all the time. But no one really quite pieces together that, yeah, sweatshops are bad and underpaid labor is bad and child labor is bad and the material costs of what we're doing to the environment making this stuff out of plastics is bad. But all of this is set in a world where there are particular companies that are doing this on purpose and the the larger actions of what those companies the giant clothing brands are doing is even more damaging than what we realize as sort of consumers of fast fashion and one of the things that happens is that companies with this much power and and really, in many places, they are the only job opportunity for women working around the world. And that includes in places like Cambodia, where the garment factories are, are the only places for women to really legally work. 
as well as places like the U.S. where, you know, you can go into modeling or you can go work at a clothing store or you could go work in a clothing factory, but basically you're working for the garment industry. So all of these companies, these handful of major clothing brands, they also end up influencing policy in a very, very massive way. And they can influence policy nationally by saying to Cambodia, for example, we're going to pull out unless you continue making it possible for us to underpay women for doing this work. Or simply by saying, look, we're you know funding a majority, a major economic contribution to your um, gross national product. We want this provision written into this new trade agreement. And so those policies as a whole end up doing a significant amount of damage that, that we don't even necessarily connect to what's happening in fast fashion. And what happens is that those companies then fund things, uh, you know, sometimes very thoughtful things that influence that policy. So, for example, Nike, H&M, Inditex have also, I think, done this. They are funding anti-human trafficking efforts around the world, which sounds good, but on the ground, this means that they're often going out and arresting women who are doing sex work. Whether or not that used to be legal in that country before the U.S. came along and demanded it be criminalized. And they're, they're putting women back into shelters and then retraining them to continue working in the garment industry, which often is the industry that they left in the first place. Right. And, and also because with the, with the mindset that somehow that's more respectable work. Yeah, more respectable. But often that's a very recent notion. And what the truth of the difference between sex work and garment work is rates of sexual abuse and uh, sexual violence that happen in the garment industry are actually extremely high. It is often a reason that women end up leaving the garment industry and going into the now illegal sex work. In Cambodia, for example, it simply wasn't a crime to do sex work until the U.S. sort of started implementing the TIP reports and making um, trafficking a provision. It's very complicated, but they started sort of incentivizing trafficking, anti-trafficking measures as a way of allowing certain countries' entrance into other trade agreements. And so it becomes another barrier to the, the playing field of globalization. And basically what happens is that Women are leaving the garment industry for sometimes very good reasons, often not wanting to participate in that kind of abuse or be victimized in that way. The only other option in many situations is sex work. And then they're coming along and they're being arrested, forced back into situations where they're learning the garment industry, often a place, something that they already know. Sometimes the training situations are underpaying them severely, but they're still doing the work of the garment trade. And so the garment trade's actually sort of in this big picture way, ensuring women have no other options for labor except 
for continuing to participate in fast fashion. I'm speaking to author and investigative journalist Anne Elizabeth Moore about the fast fashion industry and how it ties into everything from the sex trade to human trafficking. After this, I ask her why we don't just stop buying. You're listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. This is Bookmark. I'm Mua Paganampage Pagan, and I'm speaking today to Anne Elizabeth Moore about fast fashion and its relationship to human trafficking and the international sex trade. You know, it's late in your book, and it was this that you have this one line in your book, and that's what I think that's what got my brain ticking, or rather, just got me so confused. And, when you, <laughs> and no, no, it's when you say the inability to distinguish between sex work and human trafficking does nothing to change the available opportunities for women to make a living. And then you go on to say, which, which may be why the garment industry is such a strong supporter of anti-trafficking efforts. And, and, the, in, and the interconnectedness between the three of those things is dire and shocking. Yeah, and when you look at that, like then you have made the small connections, and when you look then at the big picture that the garment industry currently employs between one-sixth and one-seventh of the women in the world already, period. And, and let's take that fact for a second and look at it in a big picture. Why do we have a global gender wage gap when there's one single industry that's limiting the amount of money that women can possibly earn? That's not irrelevant. But then we look at how do we then... You know, we can't even estimate the number of women participating in the sex industry, which largely exists because there are no decent wage jobs <laughs> for women in most of the world. So let's think about how much influence one single industry has over the lives of women, all women, not just what we wear, but what we can choose to do in the world, where we can travel because of it, whether or not we um, will ever earn enough money to, you know, buy our own homes or feed our kids, etc. And that's when it gets really, really intense. You're wearing something from it right now. I'm probably wearing... I'm wearing a Uniqlo T-shirt. That's probably made by somewhere, somehow, using something. And in, because it's cheap, right? It may, it, it's got a Marvel character on it, but it means, you know, to get that license and still sell it for 10 quid means it's super cheap. So I don't see an end solution. I, I, I just think that the capitalism of the world will keep this machine churning because people want cheap T-shirts. Yeah, totally. They want cheap, cheap T-shirts. And... And I have to say that, um, you know, my decision to continue participating in fast fashion, like I'm very, very lucky. I travel all over the world and I talk about this stuff and designers contact me and they're like, look, I run this teeny little shop and I do this amazing thing and here's a dress. And I love that. And the clothes are always amazing, you know, and I have the opportunity to opt out of fast fashion. But I spent seven years on the ground in Cambodia reporting on the garment trade. I know many of the women who make these clothes. I can't pull support for their labor without feeling like I'm not 
upholding my own notion of integrity, right? So I am, I am complicit in that. I mean, we're all complicit in it regardless. And that's one reason why drastic changes like, I mean, boycotts, boycotts generally fail because they're not implemented properly. But one of the things that we can't do is just shut down H&M overnight because that literally will leave women in destitute, horrible, terrifying poverty overnight. So I'm not sure what the short-term solution is either, and, but I know for sure that there isn't one, and that's kind of the point. What we don't have is a vast understanding of what the real problems are. And when we start talking about like, well, boycotting is a great idea. Oh, my gosh, we have to like stop buying clothes from H&M, which puts my friends out of work. Um, we don't, we're not looking at this as a policy issue, and this is a policy issue. So we need to start getting politicians on board who actually understand this stuff. We need to strip trade benefits out of the trafficking in persons report. And we need to start thinking about opportunities to support other labor possibilities for women in developing nations and around the world. And, and those are all long-term solutions, but that's what's required here. So what is it? What, what is the solution? And the only realistic, practical thing I could come up with where in some ways it benefits women and it benefits the consumer is that, yes, sure, everyone wants cheap T-shirts and cheap dresses, but maybe they don't have to be this cheap. Yeah, and that's that's been proposed and kicked around, especially since the multi-fiber agreement of 1974 came to a close in the early 2000s. Um, it's been kicked around that we simply raise prices. The problem with raising prices is, I mean, I, I, I'm totally on board that. I'm completely fine with raising prices if we see an immediate increase in the wages of the laborers who are making the clothes in the first place. That I will totally pay for. But that isn't going to change the larger picture of the influence that these industries have, that this particular industry has on women's lives around the world. That's the part that's so big and scary that we also need to figure out a way to address it. But but it's also true that anti-poverty measures in general are the only way to combat human trafficking. And so finding a way to implement more effective anti-poverty poverty measures everywhere, U.S. as well as places like Cambodia, is, is going to do some of that work as well. But those are also, I would say, sort of short to medium term solutions. Larger term solution, we need to start thinking about women in a more equitable way. <laughs> right, of course, yeah. And and I mean and and then the other the other the other thing I was thinking about of course was in the short term the I guess the argument that works on a policy level is the terrorism argument because yeah, because that's where they get their money. I mean, it's, it's it's DVD piracy and 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 and, and clothes and, and 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 all of this that finances global terrorism and Possibly that's a 
that's an emotive enough argument to get people going, even if they're not thinking about poor women in developing countries. It's <laughs> totally true. But I also think that a terrorism like trafficking, when you look really closely at it, is just a concept that falls apart. They're just sort of these these fake terms that people use. And so it's true that that would be like an effective organizing tool. But But I also think that, you know... It's really hard to pin down exactly what terrorism does, just as it's difficult to pin down exactly what trafficking is. Right. And and these concepts are just constantly used to implement policies that really end up benefiting weird things that aren't actually written into the policy in any direct way. So so I'm always sort of shy of, of building something on a shaky foundation uh, or a term that might shift meaning at any given moment. <laughs> Here's the thing. People aren't aware of these connections we've been talking about, but the way you put it in your book and the way you've just explained it to me, these connections are very direct. They're not indirect. No. Oh, no. It's, I mean, it's like, as I was, so I, this, the book came from a series of um, comics reports that I had been doing for a website called Truth Out for a number of years. Um, and this series was a 14-month series that I did, a monthly comics journalism investigation. And then to put the book out, we sort of doubled the content and, and dove slightly deeper into a couple of areas. And when I did, when I came across the piece of information that became the strip that basically tied together the anti-human trafficking sort of movement and the garment industry – you know, I had this aha moment, right? And the, we put the strip together and then the strip went out and then everyone read it. It was very exciting. And, uh, and then it was like, oh, well, that was so obvious. Why did I even bother writing that down? And yet, you know, as the book is sort of out in the world more, people are still shocked by that connection. But it's not hidden. Nike's name is, you know, very largely written on everything that Nick Kristoff does in support of weird anti-trafficking policies that that end up doing a lot of damage to women like this it's not hidden it's just that we're sort of not thinking through what that might mean we're just sort of like Nike doing something awesome which is you know hooray the project of branding really works but like yay critical processes can maybe be re-engaged and we can start thinking about what it means when Nike starts funding stuff yeah. with a policy. We can't because we're so black and white, right? We, we know, okay, human trafficking bad. Therefore, anyone who supports anti-human trafficking must be good. Right. right because right, right. they're clearly doing the right thing. And to get, and, 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 and honestly, to get people like, cause we're, we're horrible in Malaysia. We're, we were tier three on human trafficking up until we got upgraded to tier two. And the only reason America did that was because they needed us to sign off on the TPPA. Yeah, exactly. Right? So they, I don't think we improved in, those, in that 18 months. Like, I don't, I don't think we did, took drastic efforts to stop human trafficking in the country. But, you know, everyone, everyone kind of plays, governments play ball and, and everyone strikes a deal. But to get, I guess the general public to understand that level is, is an effort, but it's an easy one. It's like human trafficking, bad, because human dignity needs to be protected. It's like the slave trade. 
And we've got them that far. Now, when we throw an argument out to them that goes, hey, you know something? Not all the people that support anti-human trafficking are necessarily doing the right thing. And then you're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> which, which side am I supposed to be on? Well, I think two things about that. And one is that, you know, when you have such a shifting notion as human trafficking in play, allowing you to make weird trade decisions like the U.S. does all the time, what a country like Malaysia and all of, all of the countries in the world that have done this, and most of them have, is um, what can happen when all of a sudden you need to be upgraded from tier two to tier three, which is one of the bigger sort of um, levels for participating in these trade policies, is you basically, you literally just go out and you arrest a bunch of sex workers and people who haven't been trafficked, who are who are doing this work as the only viable alternative to other um, job possibilities. And then on paper, you have, we rescued X hundred people from human trafficking. And there's really no definition of human trafficking that specifically says, hey, wait, at-will sex workers don't count as human trafficking victims, right? And so all of a sudden, like, you can just do that. You can go out and you can perpetrate the abuse of a bunch of women because the U.S. has asked you to be upgraded and you want to participate in the this t TPP situation, which, you know, no judgment. <laughs> so, so, so that's kind of fake in the first place. But that's the way that the system is set up, right? And and it's weird and it's a problem, but we can't lose sight of the X number of hundred women that are being arrested and sort of forced out of a job in order to make that happen. And that's messy. But what, you know, the sex worker that I look at very closely um, in my book, Serpent Libertine, is a Chicago-based sex worker and sex workers' rights organizer. And how she sort of terms it is as a moral panic. And once we set up the moral panic of human trafficking, then, yes, it's a totally black or white issue. And people are either for it or they're against it. And it can be very complicated when you're like, no, 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 no. You know, I'm against human trafficking. It's just that the situation that you have pointed out as human trafficking isn't actually human trafficking at all. And that's the conversation we need to start having internationally. That was author, investigative journalist, and cultural critic Anne Elizabeth Moore. Her book, Threadbare Clothes, Sex, and Trafficking, is an absolutely enlightening read. I insist you check it out. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.